pace of innovation is increasing. Just imagine, think of the top 10 companies of the world today, right? And ask yourself, which one of them is going to remain in the top 10 a decade from now? Now, we don't know which one, but only half. The more interesting question is, which companies are going to take their place? Some of them, you haven't heard a name yet. Yuri Levine is a serial entrepreneur behind more than 10 startups, including two unicorns. The best known is probably Waze, the traffic navigation app he co-founded in 2007 and sold to Google for over a billion dollars six years later. Yuri is a well-known speaker, but he added author to his CV earlier this year with the release of his book, Fall in Love with the Problem, Not the Solution, a handbook for entrepreneurs. The book is a distillation of his learnings and he wrote it to spread entrepreneurial success as much as possible, which is great for us because that's what we're all about on this show. How can we make you a better business leader? I must confess, I'm in it for the same reason and learnt a lot from Yuri. Now, he was born and raised in Israel, a hotbed for entrepreneurship. And I grew up at the house that uh, both parents were working. My dad was actually an entrepreneur and my mom was a teacher and I ended up to be both. And in that sense, I ended up with, um, you know, after Waze was acquired, I left. And uh, and since then, I have 10 different startups and all of them. My role is to coach and guide the CEO and uh, increase their likelihood of being successful. And by that way, increase the likelihood of the company of being successful. You know, you've written this late, this book, right? So for those that can't see Yuri right now, he's wearing a T-shirt. This is a very tech entrepreneur, it's worth saying, like very proudly wearing the title of his book on his T-shirt. So fall in <laughs> love with the problem, not the solution, which I love to think is probably just a prompt to your interviewer to be like, remember to me, ask, ask me about the book and don't go off track. So I'm staring at the, at the problem in front of me, not the solution. You've written it as a handbook for entrepreneurs, right? And I know that you've been involved in more companies than Waze, and I think we'll definitely get to that. But I think it'd be really helpful to actually use the story of Waze along with examples from other companies, if you'd like, to actually explain some of the key lessons you're trying to teach in the book. So let me start by saying that I'm wearing those T-shirts for the last decade or so um, in different, uh, you know, speaking events and so forth. And the name of the book was obvious that this is going to be the name of the book, but T-shirts was there before. And this is really important, right? Because um, in general, what I'm trying to say here is, look, if you want to make an impact, if you want to change the world, then then start with a problem. Think of a problem, a big problem, something that it's worth solving, something that the world will become a better place if you solve that. And then ask yourself, so who has this problem? Now, if you happen to be the only person on the planet with this problem, then I would say, you know what, go to a shrink. It's going to be way cheaper and faster than, than building a startup. But if a lot of people actually have this problem, what you really want to do next is go and speak with those people and understand their perception of the problem. And only then go and start to build your solution. Now, if you follow this path and your solution works, it's guaranteed guarantee that you're creating value. If you start with the solution, you might be building something that no one cares, and this is going to be really frustrating. But there are two other things that are going to happen when you follow this path. When you speak with other people and they share with you their perspective of the problem, you feel like they are sending you on a mission to solve that for them. And this is where you fall in love with the problem. And when this happens, the problem is going to serve two purposes in your journey. The first one is it's going to be the, the North Star. And when you have a North Star, you're way less likely to make deviation. You will have deviations, right? There are cloudy nights that you don't get to see the North Star. And there might be 
many nights of cloudy nights, but at the end of the day, you know where you are going. And when this happens, then you actually increase the likelihood of being successful. The other part is that the story that you are about to tell is way more compelling. Just imagine that we will be here in 2007 and I will tell you, I'm going to build an AI crowdsource-based navigation system. And you're going to say, yeah, really interesting, but you don't really care. If I will tell you I'm going to help you to avoid traffic jams, then you do care. And so when you speak about a problem, it's easier to create emotional engagement. And the result is that you will have easier life on user acquisition, on engaging with investors, with the media, with everyone. But then you go on the journey. Then let me define the journey as a in, in three dimensions, right? It's going to be a long roller coaster journey of failures. And now let's me split into each one of them. Roller coaster journeys, ups and downs, ups and downs all the time. Now, if you'll tell me, look, all the businesses in the world have ups and downs, I agree. All the businesses in the world have ups and downs. But the frequency of those when you're building a startups are dramatically higher. It could be a few times a day. Now, if you realize that this is going to be a journey of failures, then there are two immediate conclusions. The first one is that if you are afraid to fail, in reality, you already fail because you're not going to try. If you are going to try new things, you will fail. Albert Einstein used to say that if you haven't failed, that's because you haven't tried anything new before. If you are going to try new things, you will fail. And to a certain extent, I would say, look, I know that this is, uh, this is about leadership in business, but it also could be about leadership in, par- in parenthood. And maybe the most important thing that you would like to take from this conversation today is teach your kids to fail. Because when you do, they get up. And when they get up, they're being empowered to try more and to get out of their comfort zone and keep on exploring. And at the end of the day, this exploration is going to help them to find what is it that they really like and will help them to become happier. As a generation, we don't teach our kids to fail. We actually expect them to bring A+. There is an old Japanese saying, say, say, um, Four, seven, rise eight. One of my favorites. Exactly, right. But there is another immediate conclusion out of that, right? If you realize that this is going to be a journey of failures, then what you really want is to fail fast. Because the faster that you fail, you actually have enough time to try something else, to make another version of it, another attempt, a different approach, and so forth. And you essentially increase the likelihood of being successful this way. Just imagine that uh, you're playing basketball and you're trying to score from half court. Now, if you have one shot, it's probably you're not going to make it. But if you have 50, you're actually likely to make it. And you only need to score one. The journey is going to start by trying to figure out product market fit. And product market fit basically means that you are creating value to your customers or to your users. And if you don't, you will die. As simple as that. In fact, you never heard of a company that did not figure out product market fit. They simply died. That's it. But if you think of those that did figure out product market fit, and for a second, I would suggest, let's think of um, all the apps that you're using every day, right? So just imagine your smartphones, you're searching Google, you're using Uber, you're using Waze, WhatsApp, Netflix, Instagram, whatever it is, and ask yourself, what is the difference between any of those today and the first time that you have used that? And the answer is that there is no difference. We are searching Google today the same way that we search Google for the first time in our life. We're using Waze today the same way. We're using Uber or WhatsApp or whatever it is the same way. So once you figure out product market fit, which is the value that you bring to your customers, you don't change that anymore. It takes a long time to get there. So we don't realize that, right? We just, let's take a simple example, ChatGPT, right? 
This is out for the last two months, maybe two and a half months, right? And you think about it, whoa, 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 this is just released and it's already so successful. This is absolutely amazing. We forget the fact that OpenAI is seven years old, right? Seven years old, they were working on something that will become good enough and available for the market. And maybe it's still not good enough. Maybe there is still a lot of work that needs to be done. And about $10 billion of funding to get there as well. Exactly. But, but it's a long journey. And the long journey is the one that is really important here. It was five years for Microsoft. It was four years for Waze. It was 10 years for Netflix. Each one of those companies that you're using every day, it was a long journey to get there. We hear that story so often on Secret Leaders, which is, you know me today and everyone thinks overnight success, but 17 years. Until right now, I'm talking to you, 17 years, you know, that that memory comes to me from a company called Photobox. We had 15 years from the founder of Shazam. It's amazing how long the iterations, and quite often as well in technology companies, right? Because I think utilizing technology, there's, there's a lot that goes into it, including market timing, right? Market timing of, are you too early with your technology for it to actually be relevant and interesting to consumers at that moment in time? You can just be a bit too early, or you can be too late because it takes too long. Like, there's so many different factors at play. You know, when I even think about something like Waze, obviously Google Maps already existed. So you're not necessarily solving the problem of like, how do I get from A to B generally because Google have mapped out the world at that point. You're saying, what if? And your what if is so fucking weird at the time of conception, like you're saying, 2007, that it wouldn't even make sense to most people. But you just need enough believers to know that actually community-driven analysis and community-driven information is the future. But it takes a few visionaries to see that kind of thing, right? It's, it's, it, and, and I'm assuming a lot of patience. When you start to think about your new venture, your new journey, and, uh, and often I compare that to, um, you know, to falling in love with a date, right? So, so um, there are many ideas that you think of, and eventually there is one. Or you go to many dates and eventually there is one that you tell yourself she's the one. Now, at the beginning, you only want to spend time with your date. You don't care about the rest of the world. You're spending time with your ventures. You think about it from multiple perspectives. This is uh, this is the problem I'm going to solve. And this is how the solution is going to look like. And this is um, what I'm going to do tomorrow morning. And this is a year from now and so forth until, until you feel confident enough. And then you go and tell your friends, this is what I'm going to build. Now, the first reaction is always the same. This will never work. And these are the nice guys, the lesser nicer guys. They're going to tell you this is the stupidest idea that they ever heard. You take your date for the first time to meet your friends and they're telling you, eh, she's not for you. This is where you disengage from your friends. So the good news is that you are in love and you don't listen to anyone else. The bad news is that you are in love and you don't listen to anyone else. But realizing the hardship of the journey, you need to be in love. You need to have the passion to go through the challenges period of this journey. Now, for a second, I would say when we started, Google Maps was just a map display. There was no turn-by-turn driving instructions on Google Maps. And there was no one else that was free, right? And so we had this vision. But the real vision was that we are going to help drivers to avoid traffic jams. And the only way that we can do that is that if we know where traffic jams are, and for that, we needed a crowdsource. So the crowdsource was actually part of the solution, part of the vision of the solution, that um, all I need is someone to be ahead of me on the road to tell me what's going on, right? Because this is essentially the magic of Waze. Waze crowdsource everything. Now, the part of the magic, or one of the most significant uh, parts of the magic, is that we crowdsource everything. Not just the traffic information and speed traps, but also the map itself. 
So the map that is being used by Waze was actually generated by the drivers. And this is uh, maybe the most amazing part of the crowdsourcing, right? So we could have realized how, um, you know, based on where people are driving and how they're driving, uh, we have built the algorithm that takes all of this data and generates the map out of that. Now, obviously, you know, if we will have a time machine and we will go back into 2007, you would tell me this will never work. And this is pretty much the response that I heard throughout the entire journey. 2007 was the year of the iPhone? And the iPhone was just released in 2007. Yeah, I mean, yeah, okay, so it's definitely, definitely early. Very early. The first version of Waze was running on a PDA. Remember, long, long, long time ago, there were dinosaurs and then PDA phones and then Nokia phones. Sorry, PDAs and then Nokia phones. And then a meteor came down and wiped out all the PDAs. Exactly. And when you think about it, you say, wait a minute, this is only 15 years, right? This is how fast the world have changed. And, um, and what does it mean about the future? The future is going to be even faster, right? So, so. Look, if we will have a time machine, we will go back into 2007. That means that I'm going to take away your iPhone and Waze and Uber and WhatsApp and Netflix and pretty much everything that you're using every day. It's unclear that some of us will survive. Pace of innovation is increasing. Just imagine, think of the top 10 companies of the world today, right? So, so Apple and Amazon and Google and Microsoft and Facebook and, and Tesla and whatever. And ask yourself, which one of them is going to remain in the top 10? A decade from now. Now we don't know which one, but only half. If we would know which one, then I would say, you know what, sell short on the others and this is it. And then we are done with the with the podcast. There is nothing else that you need to know except the fact that you need to sell short on those. The more interesting questions is which companies are going to take their place in the top ten companies? Some of them. You haven't heard a name yet. Now, going into this journey, you know, we started by realizing that, okay, wait a minute, we need to actually do some heavy lifting of, of coding here because um, we want to switch from a PDA version into a mobile phone and we need to do everything in real time and we need to calculate traffic information and we need to do constantly rerouting all the time because this is based on traffic information. And so we went fundraising and that was nine months of journey trying to get funded right and uh, um, and usually i would say look if you think that building a startup is a roller coaster journey then fundraising is roller coaster journey in the dark you don't even know what's coming and uh, um, and this is how scary it is and by the way when you get to the closing part of it then it's uh, in the dark and upside down and uh, um, and so things can flip you know, instantly, and you don't even notice what happened. And so we started our journey, official journey, only at the beginning of uh, um, 2008, exactly 15 years ago. And, you know, we built the first version running in real time, running on a Nokia phone, and uh, um, and that was actually pretty successful in Israel. And we realized that, wait a minute, if this is successful in Israel, and it started out of a blank page, out of thin air, then we crowdsource everything. We can go global with that, and this is exactly what we did. It was not good enough. Now, here's the, the, the gap in the, pro the problem, right? The story make perfect sense for everyone. No one likes traffic jams. So we found the common enemy of all the drivers that they are willing to do a lot in order to fight traffic jams and speed traps. And that was the promise. We are going to outsmart traffic together. And so people downloaded the app in multiple places and it was simply not good enough. And, and what we did, and this is, you know, journey of failures, multiple iterations. We spoke with the drivers. We asked them what doesn't work for them. And they told us. And we fixed that. We built the next version addressing everything that they have told us. And then 
iteration after iteration after iteration, more than a year of iterations until it's starting to become good enough. Now, this is really important. For each one of those iterations, you go with the conviction that this is it. And the day after you figure out that it's not, you start of the next one. And this is really the most important part of the understanding of the journey of failure. At the end of the day, if you want to those iterations to happen quickly enough that you don't fall in love with your new iteration, you fall in love with the problem. You remain focused on making it work for the users. And the only way that you can do that is by listening to them because otherwise you don't know. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So coming back to, I have a, I have a question that I'd, I'd love answered and I am a, a daily Waze user. And one thing I've just never understood, like how did they figure out that first one thing? So the thing that I've always wanted to know about Waze and I get to ask you directly, there's no value to the generous people giving all the data in advance in the first X many thousand customers because they're not getting anything back. Was that the hardest problem to solve? And I guess like I'm wrapping it up into a bigger question, which is what was the hardest problem that you fell in love with to solve? So so you are right. You actually need critical mass. Otherwise, there is no value. And how do you get to critical mass is always the challenge uh, for marketplaces. And it's always the challenge for uh, crowdsourcing. You know, you'll basically say, wait a minute, there is not, not even a map. So what's the value for the first driver? And the question should have been differently. Who was the first user? These are enthusiastic amateurs. These are people that care about GPS and GIS and maps, and they get frustrated with the fact that the map near their home is outdated, and their street they are living in a new neighborhood that is there for the last three years, and it's still not on the map. And uh, um, 
and the ability to actually control your own your own destiny was really critical for the first group of innovators. That was one part of it. The other part of the equation, and this is really important to understand. Look, there are rule of rule of thumbs of uh, of creating ground source uh, um, information, right? If you have information that it lasts longer, then you can rely on active participation. If you have information that is only for a short period of time, like traffic information, you have to rely on real-time passive collection of this data. And, and ways by and large is 99.9% is automatic collection of the GPS data from your device. And if you're stuck in traffic, then you, then we know exactly that you're stuck in traffic. We don't need you, you to tell us that you are stuck in traffic. We already know that. The information that is being gathered by the drivers in that sense or the active participation is required for street names and house numbers and points of interest and additional information that they usually last long period of time, right? If you're going to tell me this is the name of the street, you probably know that and it's probably going to stay the name of the street for a very long period of time. And so the accumulations of this data takes a little while, but then it's becoming good enough. And where is this free? Good enough and free wins the market. No one can compete with that. And the traffic information, of course, we need critical mass. But then you will say, wait a minute. What if I can inject additional data into the system, right? What if I will approach uh, fleet management companies and ask their GPS data so I can generate traffic information? And in return, I'll give them the traffic information because they might want to use that for their own purposes. Um, and so we ended up with actually injecting those this type of data into um, in, into the, the system that accelerated the growth or accelerated the value that Waze creates, uh, um, even if the map is incomplete, but the traffic information was actually pretty good. And so that was one part. Another part, and, and, and look, you know, I mentioned that we had more than one year of iterations trying to figure that out, and that was um, very challenging, right? Because um, because it doesn't work, right? And uh, um, and you're stuck in the middle of the desert, and it still doesn't work. And some of those iterations, you're making a baby step forward, and some of those, you actually go backward. In some of those, it's a leapfrog. In, in but you don't know which one is which, right? And so you keep on trying them one after the other and uh, um, and there are two things that when you think the, that you are being in the middle of the desert there are two things that you that will help you to carry through the challenging part of the journey right the mission and the team if the mission is right and the team is right then you will end up with uh, keep on going never give up and this is by the way the most important behavior that you want from an entrepreneur not to give up because it's going to be hard and it's going to be long and it's going to be harder than you think and it's going to be longer than you think and it's going to be more challenging and it's a roller coaster and you will have multiple failures, right? And to not run out of money, right? You might be running out of money. Look, most of the startups that I know ran out of money or almost ran out of money, right? And even if you think of a, of a company like, uh, like Google, they actually have hard time to raise capital at the beginning. They actually were unable to raise capital at the beginning, and they approached Yahoo and asked Yahoo to acquire them for $2 million, right? $2 million, not $2 billion, not $2 trillion, just $2 million. And Yahoo said no. Now, a lot of people would tell me, big mistake, and for a second I would say, no, no, no. They are right decisions or no decisions, because when you make a decision, you don't know what it would be like if you will choose a different path. You don't know what would have happened if Yahoo would have said yes back then, or you don't know what would have happened if Waze would have said no to Google at $1.1 billion. And if you'll tell me that Waze today worth way more, yes, definitely. Ten times more users and, uh, um, and obviously 
you know, making um, 500 times more revenues and, and so forth. So definitely a better company today than it was 10 years ago. What we don't know is whether or not Waze would become what it is today without that transactions back then. So when you make a decision, by definition, it's the right decision. Yeah, I think that's really well said. And, you know, there's a like famous interview with Kevin Systrom from Instagram where they asked him if he was upset about selling the company for a billion dollars um, because it's worth so much more now. And he just like bursts out laughing and just points out how ridiculous the journalist is. It's a billion fucking dollars. Obviously, later, many years later, you know, he kind of changed his tune a bit. But it's obviously worth saying, you know, backing your decision and knowing that it's the right thing and not looking at it like, well, now it's a bigger company. Therefore, it was a mistake. It's just a ridiculous way to look at things. He cannot change the past. Very true. Even he can't change the past. Uh, but he can show you what you were doing four years ago, so that's sort of similar. My favourite fun fact about Google, by the way, do you know who their very, very famous early angel investor was? I'm talking first or second round. I forgot his name. He was the founder of um, Sun Microsystem, I think. Well, yes, but this is even more ridiculous. No, and it's very it's just not well known for some reason. But Jeff Bezos was in the Google seed round. I, yeah, it's yeah. insane. It's a footnote, casual from him. Anyway, um. so, so, so let, let me go into something that turns out to be very important. And uh, uh, I spoke with many entrepreneurs that their startup failed and asked them why, what happened. And, uh, and about half say the team was not right. And I kept on asking, okay, what do you mean the team was not right? And what I heard the most is, you know, we had this guy not good enough. So not good enough was the main reason. Another reason that I heard quite often is that we had uh, communication issues, right? Something that I actually called uh, ego management issues. And then I asked them the most interesting question. When did you know that the team is not right? All of them knew within the first month. Within the first month. Then he said, wait a minute. If you knew within the first month that the team is not right and you didn't do anything... The problem was not that the team was not right. The problem was that the CEO did not make hard decisions. Making hard decisions is hard. Making easy decisions is easy. This is why most people don't like to make the hard decision. And in a small organization like a startup, they will go all the way to the top to make that decision. The result, by the way, is always going to be the same. The top performing people, they would leave. They would leave because they don't like to be in a place that is unable to make hard decisions. And they would leave because they have a choice. Now, for an organization that you have people that shouldn't be there and they're still there and the top performing people are leaving, that's the beginning of the end. You cannot win if this is the case. There is a chapter in my book that called Firing and Hiring. And when I send a book proposal to um, uh, to the publisher, to multiple publisher, many of them came back and said, no, it should be hiring and firing. And I said, no, firing is hard decision. Hiring is easy decisions. Therefore, you need to learn to fire first before you're going to hire. And one of the most important conclusions of this uh, chapter, and this is for all hiring managers wherever they are, is every time that you hire someone new, mark your calendar 30 days down the road and ask yourself one question. Knowing what I know today, would I hire this person? Now, if the answer is no, then fire them immediately. Because what happens from this point on, you already set the trajectory of this person not to be successful. So this person is not going to be successful. Everyone knows. And if you don't do anything, then you're actually going to lose your leadership. But if you do, then what happens is that you build the trust for of the team, those that stays, and you actually enable that particular individuals to become successful someplace else. Because they are not going to be successful here. And the sad story is that they already know that. And so if you are going to do that, they are going to be relieved as well. In general, we can take that now. By the way, if, if you will answer that question, yes, 
I would hire this person, then you should go to this person and tell that person that you are actually very pleased with the hiring decisions and they exceed your expectation. And if there is something that you can do in terms of giving them more equity, that's exactly the time to establish that. In general, we can take that for anything in life, right? Knowing what I know today, would you do something different? If the answer is yes, then do something different. What I want to know is how much of what you've just said to me, distilled into a book of wisdom after two unicorn companies and 10 other companies and a long time in, uh, in, in, in entrepreneurship in general, how much of that were you practicing at the time at Waze? Like how much of that was something that you actually understood to be true and how much of it is reflections you wish you'd have learned faster? So obviously part of it I've learned throughout the journey, part of it I've learned before. But um, one of the most interesting parts of Waze is is about when we started and um, and the story goes back into 1999 where three friends of mine started a startup in israel called human click and no one heard of this company because they got acquired 16 months after in year 2000 by live person and usually if uh, you know you are an entrepreneur your company is being acquired you are being asked to stay for x period of time and uh in the first period of time, you are trying to make integration work. And then the next period of time, you're trying to find someone to replace you. And then the third period of time, you're looking for, you're starting to think of your next journey. And after two years or three years and one day, you leave and you build your next company. And these three founders stayed there until 2007 <clears throat> and asked them why. And they told me that was the best working place we ever had. And based on that, we decided that we're going to build ways as the best working place we ever had. Look, when you start a company, accept the mission and the problem you're trying to solve and your vision and everything else. You also have an opportunity to establish the DNA of the company. And you can do that on the first day. You can basically say, this is what I want. And the best approach to do that is, by the way, ask yourself, so what was my best working place ever? And when you look back, then ask yourself why it was the best working place. And then this is the beginning of the definition of your DNA. And we decided that we want our people, our employees to be happy with where they are. Where they are. And we actually had that in our dialogues, in our interviews, in our continuous dialogues. And if someone was not happy, we thought that they deserve to be happy someplace else. And we ended up with actually having people that, that the DNA was part of their vision. They wanted to work in a place like that. And therefore, we ended up with building the best working place we ever had. The result of that, by the way, is that you have very low attrition. People are not living because they're happy. And people, by the way, are happy not because of what they're doing or how much they're getting paid. They're happy because the people that they're working with and the direct supervisor and the team that they're working at is the main reason that people would leave a certain point of a certain job, right? So people are, are going to join the company, but they are going to leave people. And so that was uh, true at ways. That was true at most of my startups. Um, and, uh, um, and there are parts that you basically say, okay, wait a minute. This is our priorities. This is what is really important for us. This is what we care. Um, this is how we are going to behave and, and so forth. And, uh, um, and we ended up with actually building multiple companies that, uh, that are 
very successful in the terms of happiness of the employees, right? Because the employees turned out to be the number one priority. Now, what happens in this case is that when the company is struggling, when the company goes into trying to get funded, it is unable to get funded. And you basically say, wait a minute, I have no money to pay. And I understand that I cannot force you to stay. But if you will stay, then then it's increased the likelihood that we will become successful. And you end up, end up with 95% or even 100% of the people stays. That's because they were the, for the top priority. It almost sounds like the thing that you're reflecting on is that you've fallen in love with the problem and the problem is employee happiness. So if you fall in love with trying to keep your employees happy, the solution is obviously you get the, uh, the outcome of successful startups because what you're essentially buying is motivation. Look, at the end of the day, companies are successful because of their employees, not because of their vision, not because of the problem, not because of the marketing, not because of the money that they have, because of the people. And therefore, I like companies that basically say our employees is the number one priority. You know, all the stakeholders that we have in this company, this is the most important stakeholders. Last thing on ways, or almost last thing on ways, I'll say, there's lots of positives. And you're talking a lot of a lot of the, the framing, obviously, of falling in love with the problem. And I suppose, again, engineer mindset, every problem is an opportunity to solve. What were some of the challenging problems? What are some of the things you reflect on as actually difficult moments in your in your time at Ways that are teachable lessons for other entrepreneurs as well? So, so look, un- until you're figuring out product market fit, you're actually in the middle of the desert, right? You have no traction and you only see sand around you. Especially in Israel. You know, yeah, yeah. I was in Canada earlier this month and I spoke about the desert and then I see that people don't figure it out. And I said, you know what, just imagine a complete ice field between here and Yukon territory, right? And and then they realized, right? Tundra or desert, same thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you walk all day and you don't see that you're making progress. And, um, and most of the startups, by the way, they will die in this middle of the desert uh, because they did not figure out product market fit. If you run out of funding in the middle of the desert, guess what? In the middle of the desert, fueling is very expensive, right? It's going to be painful and people are not going to believe you and you have nothing to show them that you're right, right? Because you have no progress. And this is uh, one of the things that happens to us in 2010. We were unable to raise capital because we didn't have enough traction. We actually had ways good enough in very few places and none of them was significant, right? So that was maybe in the Czech Republic and Slovakia and Latvia and Ecuador. And that's about it. But it was not good enough in London. It was not good enough in the US. It was not good enough anywhere in Western Europe. It was not good enough in major countries. And we ran out of cash and we were trying to raise capital. We were almost there. And then Google announced their turn-by-turn navigation, right? So they decided to build their own maps. And as a result, they were able to offer turn-by-turn navigation in the middle of us trying to get funded. And um, everyone told us that we are doomed, right? Because now Google can put any amount of resources into it. And we say, no, we are different. Now we ended up uh, saved by by the bell in that sense, because uh, Microsoft had no solution. So they decided to invest that ways in 2010. And that, that gave us the funding that we needed in order to become good enough. You know, when we become good enough, um, then then Waze is a winner, right? It's a winner because of the frequency of use. Now, if I will speak with 100 years Waze users and I will ask them, how frequent do you use Waze? They are going to tell me every day. If I will take 100 people that are using Google Maps and I would ask them, how often do you use Google Maps? They will tell me when I need it. 
And so the, the use case is very different. This is why we ended up to be successful because we were trying to help people to avoid traffic jams on their daily commute every day. And the result is that people that are using Waze are using Waze um, every time that we are um, that we are trying to do that, right? Every drive, every time we're trying to, uh, uh, we're going into the car, we are using Waze. It's interesting you said you had an investment from Microsoft, but then sold to Google. So no, no difficulty there? You know, you look at the end result and obviously no difficulties there, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, at, sure. At the end of the day, um, Waze need to fit into, if you want to acquire Waze, and, and this is general speak about, general, general speech about acquisition, right? So you don't build your company to be acquired. You build your company to be successful. And at a certain point of time, when you are becoming successful, then if you are relevant to some of the competitors, then they will make an offer, right? Or not necessarily competitors, some of the major players in the market. Now, at the time, you would say, okay, wait a minute, 2013, who would be an acquirer for Waze? Then obviously Google or Facebook or Microsoft or Samsung um, or um many other players or not many but few other players that could have been relevant uh, and at the end of the day um and and this is where it's becoming relevant look if you're already on the path of being successful then you are unique and there is only one of you and and therefore uh, if someone wants to acquire you, then everyone else realize that, wait a minute, if you're being acquired, then you are off the table. If you're off the table, then I cannot acquire you anymore. And therefore, I need to make the decision today if I'm ready to acquire you or not. Obviously, back then, Microsoft was unable to make that decision. Fair enough. Okay. You very famously sold Waze to Google and left a day after. Any particular reason why? And I think more importantly, how did you manage to structure that deal? Because I'm sure that'd be very alluring to other people to learn something here. So in general, I would say everything in life comes with a cost, right? So obviously, if there is a retention package and you leave, then you don't get the retention package. And, but for me, I was already in a process of building the next startup. I'm, you know, I'm always thinking of the next one in the... And, and so I was already in a process of um, building uh, VX that later has become Pontera and was already, uh, you know, engaged with uh, MoveIt. And, uh, and I thought that this is a good time for me to leave. And therefore, I left the day after. Obviously, everything comes with a cost, right? But the cost is, is at the end of the day, is a, is a choice, right? So are you saying that cost, that cost, just so I can understand specifically, that cost was your earnout, As in, by choosing to go early, you took less from the deal, and therefore it's a real cost, but you value your freedom much more. Yes, exactly. Amazing. Good for you. I just like to say good for you on behalf of many listeners. That's a tough, that's a tough decision, right? Because Google is very famously, Google very famously uses money to trap people, which sounds like terrible, because obviously a lot of people do great work at Google and are really happy. But they understand how massively motivating an incredible lifestyle and good money is. And it takes a lot of resolve to turn that down for your own freedom. Um, many of my friends uh, um, that way stay there. And, um, and some of them were not happy. And and um, and uh, for a second, I would say money cannot buy you happiness. It will help, but it cannot buy you happiness. Um, and so if you suffer because of a, of a nasty boss, you would leave. And how painful it is or how much they are going to pay for that pain, pain I don't know. Each person have their own decision to be made at, at this uh, uh, at this point. But, uh, but at the end of the day, I wanted to build more startups. And, um, and it was more important for me than staying. Um, and it was okay for the deal perspective because um, 
I was already, part of my mindset was already in, in the next journeys. Before we go into the next journeys and lessons that you can teach as well, in, in terms of obviously lessons you've distilled from your book, but with reflections on life postways, I want to know, you said a minute ago, I'm always looking forward. That is obviously a very typical entrepreneur mindset, but do you find that also like a challenging mindset where you struggle to actually be present and enjoy what you're currently doing? Because those two ideas struggle to coexist, you know? They, um, they don't. They don't because I ended up to be enjoying what I'm doing and, um, you know, I'm enjoying this conversation. And, uh, um, and at the same time, if you would ask me, was that the best conversation that I ever had? And I will tell you, no, the next one is going to be way better. So what you're saying is last time you had an interview, you were paying me a massive compliment. <laughs> and, and I think that, um, what is really important is actually not to get stuck in the past not to get stuck in the past because when you do then you're trying to change the past and you cannot change the past what you can do is you can define your actions today that will influence the future that's it but the past you cannot change the past talking about your past and the future of Fromways. Talk to me about how you got into building 10 different startups. Like, why was that something you wanted to do? Did you start with an idea of like, there's a certain number I want to do for a certain amount of time. And essentially, I have this thesis of how I can spread my time. Or did it just kind of start happening? And you realize this is quite a lot of fun. I want to keep doing it. So it's uh, more of the first one, but I ended up to be the second one, right? At the end of the day, um, look, I I've created or we have created a lot of value to the mankind with ways. And, um, and we are saving them time. For a second, I would say there is way more value in ways today than there was uh, by just saving time, right? Because we create, uh, um, we create certainty, right? So you know how long it's going to take you to get to a destination. And that, by and large, is way more important than um, you know, being able to get there five, time, five minutes earlier. But for me, my mission is about value creation. I want to create more and more and more value. And because of that, I'm building startups. Because of that, I've built ways. Because of that, I wrote my book. Because I want to help people to become more successful and create value through through that part of the journey, right? And uh, um, in most of my startups, they have common denominator of doing good and doing well. Actually, all of them when they started. And each one of them is trying to solve a problem, right? And basically, the, the simplest way to create value you solve a problem. And um, you led an academic workshop, I, I read about this, so it's uh, entitled How to Build a Startup. And it was aimed at undergraduate and graduate level business students, right? So not to try and rip off all of your teachings into a couple of sound bites for our listeners for free, but what was your best advice from that? It might sound uh, a bit odd, but read my book. Oh, I mean, that's a perfectly reasonable thing to say, but go on. I built this uh, um, workshop or ended up to be a you know a whole semester uh, course back in 2016 or 17 and after it was completed I basically say this is a content for the book and so the book is by and large based on that or vice versa today and obviously more chapters in the book than there were back then an entrepreneur sent me a, a, an email um, uh, after reading the book, you'd say, look, this is the, the most amazing book that I ever read. But the more interesting part is that my mom, which is an elementary uh, school uh, principal, 
She took my book away and read it, and she had more footnotes than I did. And after that, she said that was the most important educational book she ever read, and that was not an educational book. The whole relationship with education, which arguably, you know, is about to change enormously because of AI, like it just has to. The whole education system, and the, the reason I'm saying it is because of what you said earlier, which is we don't teach people about, we don't teach kids about failure. The whole exam process, like everything, is about perfection. It's about polishing something up for an exam. It's a, a fail or a pass. It's done. I did not do well in an academic scenario at all. I was just awful at it. I'm pretty decent at entrepreneurship. I have a bunch of companies and like the whole process of trying and failing and just going up again it really suits me. But school did not. And a lot of entrepreneurs I know relate to that as well. And um, School didn't work for me either. Actually, it did. I, most of my friends are from school, right? So many of my friends are from school. So it did work in that sense. Yeah, me too. Which is ended up, uh, and you know, one of my kids that was actually a terrible student, I told him, look, the most important thing at high school is friends, right? Because everything else you can, if you don't like the results, then fix it later. But, uh, but here is what, where I uh, disagree, right? It's not about AI. It's about the fact that we are still using the same school system that was there for more than a hundred years or about a hundred years in some places and nothing have changed, right? We are, we went to school the same way that our parents did and our kids went to school the same way that we did and they still have the same way that of being taught, right? And it doesn't make sense, right? The world is changing and we have learned so much because at the end of the day, and this is where it goes to our kids, right? What is it that we want for our kids? What is it that we really want for our kids? And then you'll say, I want them to be happy. But school doesn't teach them how to find happiness and what is happiness, right? And so at the end of the day, school doesn't teach them about building relationship with, uh, um, with, with other people, right? School doesn't teach them interpersonal communication, right? Uh, school doesn't teach them anything about failure and journey of life and figuring out multiple things. School doesn't teach you about becoming a good parent, right? So all the most important things in life, because if, you, if I would ask you, okay, what are the most important things in life for you? Then you will end up with saying, you know what? I have maybe four major things, right? What is it that I'm doing? So this is my purpose or my mission, my relationship, my kids, and maybe your friends. And that's about it, right? And what exactly is school, what is school's role in teaching you in all those, right? And the answer is that it doesn't. It has to change. Yuri. I'm running out of time. I could ask you loads more questions. However, that wouldn't be fair. So going to get you to wrap up. I'd love you to do a pitch and explain to our listeners why we need to go out and buy your book, Fall in Love with the Problem, Not the Solution. Whoa, 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 whoa. wait a minute. I thought that this is your job to do. That's so true. That is my job. <laughs> and I, I say the same thing you do, which is, hey, listen back to the episode and figure it out yourself. Actually, I've got a much better question for you, which was, what was the funnest chapter for you to write? What was the one that you enjoyed the most? So, so understanding users that we haven't even spoke about that and um, firing and hiring. and Because those two, I thought that they are relevant to way more people than rest of the chapters and I thought that they actually their insights are so dramatic in your ability to help you to become more successful and uh, um, and when I look back I would say look if there are only two chapters that you're going to read these are the two amazing Yuri thank you so much for your time today on Secret Leader it's been a massive pleasure getting to speak to you thank you I appreciate the time Yuri Levine a man with a genuine love of helping others find success in business now that's a mission I can get behind. Thanks for listening to this episode of Secret Leaders. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Serta.
The episode was produced by Ruth Edwards and Sol Harris. It was brought together by our head of podcast, Will Stolomon. See you next time.